Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. I'm extremely excited because today in the studio I have a dear friend and amazing filmmaker. He's the man who killed the teen dream, the filmmaker responsible for Jawbreaker and the recent hit GBF. Welcome to the studio, Darren Stein. Hey, Michael. Hi, Darren. Welcome. Thanks for coming. Thank you for having me. Uh... I want to start by asking you the same first question I ask every guest that comes on the show, uh, and it's simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want. Like, what's the attraction? What drew you to this? Hmm. Why I think I think horror is something that chooses you in a way. I know that sounds odd, but ever since I was a little kid, I was always drawn to it. Whether it was with music, with Kiss, or Alice Cooper, um, you know, any kind of dark film, like the Evil Witch in the Snow White movie, I loved as a kid. And I remember when I first saw the Rocky Horror Picture Show poster, and it was just the bloody letters alone. Right. I was, it's like something that I think was in my DNA. I was just drawn to a darker aesthetic, you know? Right. Um, and uh, I think it chose me. And I got my Fangoria subscription, and I was off to the races. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you mention Rocky Horror, because there's the mix of the bloody and then the luscious red lips. Yes. Yeah. So I think more specifically, I, fa- I, f- I think that... A big part of my aesthetic can be a sort of the uh, combination, the collision of horror and glamour. <clears throat> and we talk a lot with other filmmakers about kind of finding that spark of queerness in your interest in horror. And would you say that's true with you as well? Was there that draw there early on or no? Yeah, I think that they're sort of like the same thing. One of my first erotic experiences was in a haunted house. Interesting. <laughs> Have I ever told you this? I don't think so. No. Um, yeah, there was, I remember in Northridge, there was like this haunted house called the Factory of Nightmares. And I'd heard all the kids talking about it. It was like this elaborate haunted house that you had to wait in line for. They had carnival rides. The, whole, the kids put it on. Because at Mardi Gras at UCLA, they had a haunted house there that was pretty, pretty hardcore that I loved. But the Factory of Nightmares was next level. They only let you in seven in a group. So I was, I think I must have been, I don't know, eight or nine. And I went in. I think I was the only one in my group. I, I wasn't even, I was alone. I didn't know anyone. I think my mom had dropped me off there. I don't know how I, whoever, I didn't know anyone. And there was um, <clears throat> these two boys that went in with me and we all, I just remember clutching onto them the whole time. And <laughs> it's hard not to like laugh nervously because it's, so, it's such a personal memory. But I remember by the time I walked out of the haunted house, I felt like, I don't know, I had it. A very erotic experience like and that was it was like caused by by fear and yet there was also sort of like the fear of like transcending death and like right. clutching onto another boy and this is obviously pre-internet pre-facebook anything so i couldn't i didn't get his number i mean i was too young to get his right. number but i remember falling in love in this very small erotic intense experience what i love about it is it's kind of like you clutched onto a boy in a haunted house and then you realized maybe i just want to clutch onto boys i know <laughs> I mean, it was way before. But then, but then I started <clears throat> making my own haunted houses, and those became sort of little mini erotic experiences as well. Because I'd always have like one of my brother's friends like help me with the haunted house. You know? Oh, you were devious. I was. I was a bit of a seductress. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, one thing I know about your kind of path to filmmaking now is that film has always been part of your life. Your parents were in the industry. My grandparents started a film, a boutique film laboratory in the 60s called Crest National, which Mm -hmm. started doing like a 16 millimeter, I think porn in the very beginning. And they got into 35 millimeter. Actually, it was a camera shot first on Coenga. So my dad would come home from work and like, first thing he would do is wash his hands because he literally had them, you know, they're in chemicals all day. Right. Um, Yeah. And 
you started making movies very early on with your neighborhood friends. Yes, because my dad was really into technology. He would always always bring home uh, the, you know equipment or cameras and, and what have you. And I remember the dawn of video. It was like 1979. He brought home uh, one of the very it was probably the first consumer video camera, and it had like the battery pack, and it had like you'd carry around the VCR and don't touch this. This is dad's toy. I was never allowed to use it. But right. of course, so I started having him you know film my movies, which is hilarious because I would just boss him around and he would laugh at me. <laughs> and and you did this your whole childhood. Yeah. I mean, I started doing it when I was, I think, like eight or nine. I remember one of my very earliest movies was my version of Shock Treatment, which was the Rocky Horror sequel, as you know. Right. Now, you had a Shock Treatment birthday party as a kid, I right? did. I did. I was so obsessed with Rocky Horror. I couldn't go to see it because it was only at midnight. Right. And I remember being obsessed with... I was the only eight-year-old in a Rocky Horror t-shirt. Like, I remember going to this this shop called the Bijou <laughs> in the Century City Mall, and I found, like, a child-sized Rocky Horror t-shirt. It was probably um, a lady's shirt. Let's... Well, it was a child... No, it was for children. Really? Yeah, it was a child. And it was Frank's face. with. It, and I remember the pearls were very, like... You could see like the big pearls, and I, I just thought it was everything. I want to know what was going on in the era where they're like, let's market this to kids. Rocky Horror was a cultural, it was sort of like a hot topic in a movie. It was a phenomenon. That's true. Yeah. yeah. And at the time, we hadn't seen anything like that. No, and I remember I finally got to see Rocky when I was probably about 10 years old, because my neighbor Jordan Cole, who grew up to, he's now known as Zombie Joe. He does that Zombie Joe's Underground. Oh, yeah. yeah. He, his dad got a Betamax cassette of Rocky that someone had filmed off the screen. Oh, my God. And I remember watching it. And they had one of those projection screens with the red, blue, and green, like, rays that was really, like, you know, blurry. But I remember watching Rocky Horror and, uh, in the best possible way, which was someone, a fan had filmed it. And it was really, it was just wild. So after all that time obsessing it, when you finally saw it, it did not let you down. Not at all. No, 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 not at all. I mean, the fantasy that I had created in my head of what it was was probably more exciting. I remember I was also really into Tommy, as uh, Ken Russell's Tommy, too. And Tommy and Rocky both swam in my head in fantastical ways because there's the acid. I mean, the acid queen and Frankenfurter are very similar characters. It's true. And I don't know that people give Tommy enough credit for kind of having a queer aesthetic. Mm-hmm. Ken Russell, although a heterosexual filmmaker, his movies read as very queer oh. because there is a just heightened sense to them. And that scene in Tommy where Anne Margaret is still, like swimming in the baked beans in her like luxurious white jumpsuit. It's uh, so erotic. It's so good. It's so and gross. grotesque and yeah. beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so the the <clears throat> fact is that you grew up making these movies. Uh, in fact, you also kind of compiled a lot of them and it became the subject of a documentary you made later, Put yeah. the Camera on Me. Yes. I... Um... I don't know. I went to an all-boys school, Harvard, which is now Harvard-Westlake. I was there from 7th grade to 12th grade. I kind of didn't have friends. I was super, well, I did, but they were they were kind of like, we were kind of like the losers club with it coming out. Right. Ugh. Isn't that terrible how we think of ourselves? But I think how we think of ourselves also informs the things that we uh, transcend as adults. Yes, which is why I made the documentary, because I hated that footage at first, because I was like, oh, I was such a queenie kid. It's just so awful. That there's proof of how gay I was as a child. And then, um, and so I sort of made the documentary to sort of take ownership over that and right. put it back out into the world and say, no, I was sort of discovering my identity. And look at, I pulled all these like, quote unquote, straight kids into my, into my like filmmaking world. One was gay, the, the black kid, Alan Williams, um, gay as a whistle. You know, he starred in my, my, my overtly gay short film I made as a kid. So from making films as a kid to transitioning to it professionally, I assume it's something you knew that was always what you wanted to do. Yeah, I remember my mom saying, 
oh, well, you're going to be a doctor or a lawyer. Those are your sort of your choices. And I was like, well, no, those are not, I'm bored. That's not, it has no, they, they held, they hold no interest to me. So I remember I wanted to go to an Ivy League school and I got waitlisted at all of them. And so I was like, fuck it. I'm just going to go to film school. So I went to <laughs> NYU because I think I knew intrinsically that it was probably more responsible to get a proper education for an undergrad right. experience. And when I got waitlisted at these schools, I was like, I'm just going to go to NYU. And I remember it was too late to get into production because I, I replied late. So I was in cinema studies for the first year, which was really wild. So from NYU, you kind of kickstart your career uh, into becoming a professional filmmaker. What's what's the trajectory from that to your first feature mm. film? Well, I was pretty precocious. Uh, I made a short film on 35mm when I was, I think, a junior and then that got me my first agent. I remember uh, there was this woman who worked out with my mom, went to some, um, I don't know, rubber class with her. And she had this like kid who was her assistant. And he helped me like blast, you know, my short film, the list out to the, for the premiere. And I got an agent there. And I, long story short, I got signed with this company called Triad that used to be, that later became UTA. Right. And I wrote a movie called... Um, Sparkler. And let's talk about Sparkler yeah. because in your oeuvre, people tend to really kind of focus on Jawbreaker and GBF. But Sparkler was your first feature film. And yes. It's a movie I really like and it's got an amazing cast Grace Zabriskie, Freddie Prince Jr., Jamie Kennedy, Park Overall. Uh, just tell me about that movie and kind of the trajectory of making it. Well, Sparkler was born out of my relationship, my first boyfriend. Um, he was from a small town called Victorville on the way to Vegas. And I was fascinated by it because it was like this trailer parks and like faded showgirls. And like, it was literally a town on the way to Vegas. Right. Like, that was what it was known for, you know, before like Bun Boy or whatever. This is before. Right. I mean, they had like one mall. It was called The Mall. Wait, is that the place on the way to Vegas where they have like the alien beef jerky or is that somewhere else? I think that's somewhere else. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a slightly bigger town, but it's like Apple Valley, Victorville. Gotcha. I mean, it's called Victorville. It sounds so, you know. Right. So small town. It's like a Stephen King location. Too. It really is. And so he took me to like all these faded drive-ins and we just had a good time. Like there's one bar off, literally off the highway that we went to one night and there's a woman that was there and she was covered in head to toe sequins. <laughs> and she was sparkling. And we kind of were making fun of her, calling her glitter bomb, you know, different, you know, like sparkle puss. But you were also fascinated and by fascinated her. By her. Yeah, yeah. And then as she, from afar, she was sort of like this vision, but as she got closer, she became more of like, we saw this grittier, grittier reality. And she was like, I was with my, my ex and a fr another friend and three of us. And she's like, would one of you handsome young men care to dance with a lady? She's like, it's my first night out after 15 years of marriage, but I still got the moves. And then she like gyrated her hips and we each danced with her. And that experience stayed with me because I was like, wow, who was she and where is she going and what is her life? Right. And that was the genesis of the idea of Sparkler, which is about these three guys from Ve from L.A. who go on a road trip to Vegas. Their car breaks down in Victorville and this woman sees, sees them as a way out of her sort of life after leaving her husband. And how long between Sparkler and Jawbreaker? Those two films happened sort of pretty fast back to back um, because well, they I, t I made Sparkler and then the producers of Sparkler knew other producers who were looking for a teen comedy. And they knew I had the script Jawbreaker already written. And they said, hey, would you like to meet these girls? And I did. And one of them had, had produced The Craft or co-produced The Craft with Doug, Douglas Wick. And they, they loved it. And they brought it out. And, you know, everyone in Hollywood passed on Jawbreaker. Nobody wanted to make it. And finally, Columbia TriStar Home Video said they would make it. Right. If we got, you know, A, B or C actress. Um, now, though both films carry your aesthetic, what's interesting is Sparkler's very much this kind of coming of age story and uh, about sort of, you know, people finding a way out and finding a way in. And then there's Jawbreaker, which is 
not really a coming of age story so much as a, a killing an age story. Uh, and it's a, a savage film wrapped in glamour. Yeah. As someone who grew up watching Rocky Horror and being sort of attracted to darker material, mm-hmm. tell me about the genesis of Jawbreaker. I think the reason why it was so savage and the, why it has that darkness is because it was supposed to be a horror movie. When I first started to write it, I was like, I'm going to set out to I, I seriously like set out to write a horror film. Right. Set in a teen world. I was like, well, what's horror? Horror is in so- when something in everyday life goes wrong. It can be something like completely mundane. And I was like, well, and then I had heard about these girls who kidnapped their friends on their birthdays. Because I had gone to an all-boys school, so I was fascinated by the rituals of girls that I didn't get to sort of vicariously experience in my own school. Right. So I was like, well, what if these girls kill their friend by accident, you know, when they kidnap her? Right. And then I was like, oh, they can, what if she, what if they use a jawbreaker as a ball gag in the way that you see in gangster films, you know, sort of appropriate that trope. And then that, that melts, that could literally melt in her mouth because it's made of sugar and that gets stuck in her throat. And that's sort of a grotesque image. And that set the tone for the rest of the film. I didn't even know what was going to happen in the film. I just started sort of writing it. It was a kind of stream of consciousness. And I sort of let the jawbreaker sort of dictate the tone. And then once I started writing the dialogue, I was like, oh, this is really the Heathers is coming out. This is, you know, all my Valley Girl and all the movies that I loved, all the teen films that I loved from my childhood. Right. All started to percolate. Um, And it became, it became more of a dark comedy and less of a horror film. What's interesting though, is that there is that darkness and for a long time, it did fall into the pantheon of the kind of teen comedy, albeit an edgier one. Yeah. But now in 2017, we've seen with the rise of social media that Jawbreaker has sort of been co-opted by the horror community. Mm-hmm. And to the degree that Hulu uh, has Jawbreaker on their streaming platform, and it's listed under horror films. Oh, cool. And I'm wondering... Um, when you started noticing that film kind of being embraced by that side, or if you... It was when it was so funny, because I wasn't on Twitter or Instagram, because I just didn't have, you know, I, I was making a living as a writer, but I hadn't directed a film, and so I was like, I'm not going to get on Twitter until I have something to promote, you know? Right. And so once I made GBF, then I got on Twitter and Instagram, and it wasn't until I got on those platforms that I started searching Jawbreaker and seeing all the kids who are into it, and all the fan art, and a lot of them are gothic goth girls and like, you know, like horror fans, like covered, you know, and literally the kind that are like covered in tattoos and piercings and pretty hardcore because it, because Jawbreaker has a sort of a BDSM underbelly to it and, um, and the glamour and it has a, a moral, I don't know, like it's almost, it's more transgressive to do what I did with Jawbreaker because you're not calling it horror. <laughs> you're saying right. it's a teen comedy. So that makes it in a way even more disturbing. Um, so I think it, it, it really draws in that kind of crowd, you know? What I think is really interesting about it is that it's social horror. Mm-hmm. More than just the death, I think the true savagery of the movie mm-hmm. is um, just the, the hierarchy that is constructed in this world that Rose's character Courtney rules over yeah. and how um, she uses fear to beat people down. Yeah. Was that your experience in high school or no? No. <laughs> well, you know, I think I felt like a very much of an outsider for sure, like complete sense of otherness. And so I think Jawbreaker in a way was probably a lot of like this built up animosity I had towards the world and towards people and towards the cool kids. And it was a complete revenge film for me. And it's so funny because, you know, Rose, I remember when we were casting it, I already knew about Rose. She had been in Scream and she had done the Doom Generation. And I loved her in the Doom Generation. But I thought, oh, casting her as Courtney is way too on the nose. Right. Like everyone will, everybody would suspect, uh, expect that. But she's the one who ended up playing the part. And I remember when I first met with her, <laughs> when we had our first meeting, she was like, 
I think I'm going to play her, you know, sort of like, you know, emotionless, like almost like a robot, you know, and she started like doing all these like kind of like semi-robotic movements for me, like something out of like, I don't know, like an automaton. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. But it, it's also a little, I was nervous because it was kind of like a strong choice and pretty out there. Right. But, you know, we collaborated and, you know, I think it turned out great. And she really brought the role to the next level as far as, you know, the, vis- the viciousness of it because of her cold, her coldness. Right. And the movie definitely struck with a cult audience. Yeah. But when you were making it, could you have ever foreseen that you'd still be talking about this movie all this time later? I cut, you know, it's so weird. And I, I know it sounds kind of, I don't mean to sound like egoistic to say it, but I remember when I first saw the dailies for this movie, when we were shooting it, I was like, this looks like beyond what I could ever, ever even imagine. So I remember thinking, I gotta, gotta, I gotta, you know, ride this, ride this top all the way to the end because it's, it's awesome. It was so great. Um, so no, it was, yeah, no, but it's exciting that it's still around, especially because when it came out, it got like such a low rating. <laughs> Critics hated it. It didn't make much money. Right. You know, so it was, and it was re- because it was released by Columbia Tracer Home Video. It didn't get like that big 2000 screen release, like Can't Hardly Wait or, um, Cruel Intentions and all the other idle hands, what have you. Right. But it was, it's compared with all those because it's the same era of 90s teen cinema or whatever. So I remember like getting in a limo the night it came out with my, and we were going to theaters to see it. There were theaters that didn't have the poster. <laughs> there were theaters that didn't have like the showtimes up. It was like, it wasn't like handled in that like big studio way, you know? Right. And I mean, there weren't billboards or posters at bus stops around LA. It wasn't, you know, but yes, it, but it was still released on 800 screens. The fact that it got made is a small miracle. And for kids, I mean, people wanted to see it. There was the appetite for it. Right. And now look, 20 years later, it's got a loyal fan base and it's grown in a way that you maybe didn't expect. It's interesting. There was the the musical adaptation. Mm -hmm. Which is still happening. And you recently announced in the trades that you are working on a pilot of a TV version of Jawbreaker. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, that is for E! And, you know... I actually collaborated with George Northey, who uh, wrote GBF, which was the film that I made with uh, most recently. And I, cause I couldn't crack it. I was like, I had an agent who was like, you've got to do Jawbreaker as a series. And I just wasn't really interested in revisiting it in a teen context. Right. I just felt tired. I felt like it was done. And then together we came up with a way to sort of uh, reimagine it in an adult world. Right. You know? with Instagram influencers and the same sort of viciousness and style, but in a more, I don't know, uh, modern day sort of like desperate housewivesy, uh, I don't know, um, sub- I don't want to say semi-suburban, but upper affluent LA sort of world. So yeah, it was great. We're, I mean, listen, we're still waiting to hear to whether or not it gets, you know, made into a pilot. It's a process. Right. But it was exciting just to get to write it. I think it's interesting that you leaned into the world of Instagram influencers and social media as as the new kind of litmus. Because would you say just, you know, from conversational standpoint, social media kind of keeps us all in high school forever? Yeah. It's kind of unfortunate, but it's true. I mean, yeah, you look at these people who have 20,000, 20, 30,000, a million followers, and it's like the bar is like, you know, it's like, how can you not want to aspire to that, you know? Right. And... You know, there's the whole FOMO. It's like, oh, this person's always on vacation. This person's up by the pool. They eat better food than I do. They have a better body. But, you know, it's just, it's, you can't help but compare, and which is dangerous. I'm deeply fascinated by people on social media who are always on vacation. I know. Like, how? How? Well, yeah. <laughs> I, think- I know. Well, yeah, I think, like, I know one guy. I'm not going to name names, but <laughs> <laughs> but I know that he has a friend who, like, 
you know, gets him a discount on tickets to travel. So I think that certain people, you know, there's there legit reasons why they can afford to do it. I mean, people have like, there's super like amazing loopholes. Yeah. Well, you know what? If you're out there and you're like in Turcos, Caicos, and then going to be in France tomorrow, good on you. Like, yeah, you know, I think it's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And we all get to vicariously experience it. It's true. <laughs> Via filtered photos. Exactly. And you mentioned GBF. Yes. Which was, uh, it came out in... Four, uh, four years ago. I think it's 2014. Okay, in two, 2014. And uh, it's a script that you found written by screenwriter George Northey, and it's a gay teen comedy. Yeah, it's something that I would never, ever have imagined myself doing. Um, I, you know, I'm also a writer, so I, can, I like to write my own. I mean, I have like so many scripts that haven't gotten made, you know, right. as, as, as every writer does. Um, but this script just did something new with a genre that I hadn't right. seen. And you found the script in a unique way. Yeah, I did. I found it through the Outfest Screenwriters Lab, um, which is a really great program. I mean, Outfest has been super supportive to me over the years. My documentary, Put the Camera on Me, played at Outfest, and I've directed a lot of the um, the, the Outfest, uh, the scenes for the um, screenwriting finalists that they have at the festival. And so this screenplay came to me, and I read it, and I just loved it, because I felt like it just fit so nicely into the pantheon of teen films while telling a story through the lens of a gay a gay kid that we haven't seen before. And he and it wasn't a gay movie. It was simply a gay story. I, I never considered it to be a gay film, but of course everyone like, like, likes to call that a gay film and co-opt it that way. Right. But by that token, because a whole generation is getting a queer high school movie that we never had growing up. It's true. I mean, kids call it the gaming girls, which is cool. That's fine. That's great. I mean, I'm totally down with it. I mean, Jawbreaker had a queer code to it. I mean, there's that whole... I, I, so many gay kids are like that scene when she makes him like give head to the big sick totally like brought me out of the closet and it like spoke to me and turned me on and I watched it a lot and why wasn't he in you know white jockey shorts instead of boxers you know it's like I, I feel like oh my god that popsicle was their haunted house it's true <laughs> um, well I remember when I wrote that scene it's so funny someone just Instagram messaged me yesterday or the day before saying they screen grabbed that scene and said, this scene isn't necessary in the movie. It doesn't progress the plot. And he was joking. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, that's why it's so great there because it's the scene that I didn't get to see when I was watching John Hughes movies, you know? And how important do you think it is to push those kinds of buttons? Very important because no one else is going to do it. Right. By the way, GBF also has a scene that's very provocative that I didn't write that George had in his script. You know, when the Taylor Frey character, you know, like the Mormon kid seducing him in the car. It's also very kind of sexually provocative. That's right. Yeah. I like the scene in GBF where uh, the character played by Paul Iacono is trying to watch gay movies with his mom, it's played hilarious. by Megan Mullally, because uh, it's super awkward. And um, But it also shows just how many uh, gay movies we didn't really have, like mm-hmm. because those, the ones that were mentioned were sort of the hallmarks. Mm-hmm. So I think that it's really cool that GBF now can be counted among these kind of zeitgeist-defining moments. And it's cool that you have in your career managed to uh, kind of set the bar for teen movies not once but twice. That's a really Thank you. Great yeah. I mean, there's a lot more that I'm interested in besides obviously teen movies, but you know, the fact right. that I've gotten to do to do those two films, I'm, I'm very grateful for and, you know, happy about. And you have been working on a lot of different things and I know you're interested in horror and uh, I, I want to talk to you. You recently adapted the Seeds of Yesterday, the V.C. Andrews novel for Lifetime Network, as it was, uh, they did all four of the Flowers in the Attic movies. And that is kind of like a horror classic for some people, that that book franchise. What was it like to adapt that 
literature and what challenges were there? It was really enjoyable because it's such a bizarre gothic world and the darkness is just, it's entrenched in darkness and there's no getting out of it. Uh, so it was sort of a fascinating place to live, to live in for those, those months when I was writing it and to have the book, the book is like this, like resource that you can go through and you like underline passages and you, and you, you get inspired by one line of dialogue to do a whole nother, a whole nother scene. Um, I don't know. It's, it's almost like a, a project, you know, it's like, it's like a challenge right? Uh, that I really enjoyed. Um, and I remember seeing the original flowers in the attic film, you know, with, uh, wasn't Louise, was it Louise Fletcher? Yes. It was the New World movie. <laughs> I'm loving that. So it was super fun to be able to, and uh, you know, write a modern day an adaptation of it. And Seeds of Yesterday has never been made as a movie ever. That's right. So you are the one who made it happen this time around. Like you, yes. you set the bar for if they ever do these again. Yeah. Cause I yeah. remember I had the meeting with the um, executive Lifetime, and she's like, "Well, you know, you could either do um, what's the one before Seeds of Yesterday." Uh, if there be thorns, if there be thorns, she's like, "There's a." She's like, "Was well, you know, there's if there be thorns and seeds of yesterday, but seeds of yesterday, I think, was the more exciting choice because it's, it's a bit more ultra, you know, and it has like influences from everything from like I don't know, you know, mommy dearest to like, you know, um, you know, Lolita. What I think is really cool about yeah. seeds of yesterday, especially as adapted by someone with a queer sensibility, is there is this through line in that particular volume of the story that has to do kind of with um, religious persecution and devotion. And the the adaptation that you provided kind of has this reading of like people who feel very kind of constricted by religion uh, in that way that like a lot of queer kids who are stuck in these places that are telling them they're wrong do. And you see the whole movie is all about like this relationship is wrong because God said and like the breaking out of that. And that's really super cool from a queer lens. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Well, it's, it's similar to like Ken Russell's The Devils. You know, it's almost embracing the transgressive part of religion, you know, like the antithesis. That's right. Um, which is frightening and, and also titillating all at once. And from Seeds, you've started dabbling, mm. you know, jawbreakers, horror roots aside, a little bit more into more horrific filmmaking because you would like to make an outright horror film. Yes, for point. sure. I mean, I got to do the uh, music video for Deep Valley, right? Uh, which is a great band. They just toured, uh, toured with Blondie and Garbage in, in, the, in the UK, in Europe. And it's two girls, they rock hard. They're kind of like the White Stripes. And the song was called Little Baby Beauty Queen. I remember they gave me the, I, a demo of the record and like, which song would you like to do a video for? And I was sort of drawn to, towards this song called Little Baby Beauty Queen, <laughs> which is like a JonBenet Ramsey um, inspired story. You know, um, that I got to interpret. And I, I immediately wanted to cast Trixie Mattel, you know, from RuPaul's Drag Race as the beauty queen. Because um, she's so monstrous, you know, because she's so monstrous, but yet also so, you know, um, I don't know, there's, there's still kind of an innocence to her. Right. And then you cast Veronica Cartwright as her mother. Exactly. Yeah. And Veronica was in Sparkler, so we had a, a relationship that goes way back. And of course, I'm I'm a huge fan of Alien, and so that is uh, and and which is a Eastwick and Invasion of the Body Snatchers, right? And the Birds. I mean, Veronica is a true horror legend. Right. So I remember when I first met her. I don't know. I was such a fan, but yeah, it was great to have her with Trixie. And Trixie was so like excited to be working with Veronica because uh, Brian. Uh, which is his boy name, is a fan of Veronica's. And the music video is phenomenal. It's Thank got you. this Southern fried horror kind of aesthetic to it. Uh, I actually visited you on the set of that mm -hmm. that day, and it was filmed at this really fabulous like trailer park set in uh, the suburbs. 
Um, but it's a definite must watch for fans of the show uh, because you've got a little drag, you've got a little horror, and uh, a whole lot of fabulousness. Yeah, and the murder at the end is pretty hardcore. It's like it's it's like edited like it, you know in a really like kind of like I don't know bombastic way. Now you mentioned Alien, and I wanted to talk to you about yeah. this because you've gone on the record many times as being a huge fan of Alien, and. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your attraction to that particular film, because I know it was very influential to you. Yeah, I think, once again, it goes back to a childhood, I don't know, imbalance. No, I'm kidding. Like <laughs> like, like a childhood, I don't know, proclivity or, you know, uh, I don't know. It was like when I saw the poster for Alien, it was like that egg floating in space. Right. And I said, no one can hear you. Sc- in space, no one can hear you scream. Right. I was like, oh, I need to see it. I was suddenly just triggered. Like I had to see it. And then I went to the bookstore and I got the uh, the heavy metal graphic novel and right. poured every, every page of that. And I remember when the film actually opened, I think I was, I don't know, eight, seven or eight years old, maybe nine. And my dad and his friends got to go see the 10 a.m. show at Century City in 70 millimeter. And I did not get to go. Right. They're, you're, you're way too young, you, you know. And I was just super upset about it and I remember I got to see the movie because my dad's company you know they they went from being a film lab into telecine and video post production in the late 70s and he brought home a a three quarter inch tape of the movie of Alien and so I think I saw it when I was like I don't know 10 or 11 or 12 and 10 or 11 yeah I would say 10 or 11 and I had to watch the chestburster scene in slow motion because I remember seeing reading it in the graphic novel it was like splatter of blood but somehow it wasn't as visceral at all because right. it was just like a bloodbath. But in the movie, it is so, I don't know, real is all I can say. It's, it's like I had never seen anything like it. It was, it was completely a nightmare. Like a nightmare of unpro- it was like my horror, my cherry was popped. And there is something about that chest burster scene that's very visceral. And there's a kind of a thread of that era of horror about kind of in body horror mm-hmm. where you see in the works of Cronenberg and an alien – uh, this invasiveness of of the body and this sort of fear, and I think when we're talking about the queer relation to horror, that's something that we don't talk a lot about because there is kind of a knowing connection with gay men, especially. And you did an interview with Lewis Peitzman of BuzzFeed a few years ago where you uh, and uh, several other creators in in the space talked about the gay relation to horror, and you gave this quote. You said, uh, anal sex ultimately can be construed by a child as a very grotesque act. It's invasive very much like a knife in the flesh. Do you think that there is a through line to this body horror connection and, and the sentiments? Oh, of course, definitely. Um, and I guess it's in a weird way. I mean, it's like, well, alien is about male rape, right? You know, this face hugger plants on his face, you know, orally copulates him. Right. <laughs> and then, and then he gives birth, uh, through his rib cage against his will and it kills him. So it's like the ultimate <laughs> sex equals death, you know? Right. I mean, or, or rape equals death. I mean, I don't even know what to say, but it's, I mean, it, and that a lot of that imagery comes out of the supremely depraved mind of H.R. Geiger. Right. Because that imagery was all stuff that he had in like the Necromon, you know, what is it called? The Necromonicon or something, one yeah. of his big, big books. And I don't know, super just like, I don't know, like, um, Bosch, Boschian imagery. And what's it, what's interesting about that read too, because it is uh, a, the violation of a male sexually through the lens of straight men. It could almost be read that this movie is kind of like a gay fear. Oh yeah, you're, you're, you're completely right. You're completely right. 
a gay fear, but deep down with an attraction to it. Because, True. you know, that that sort of helps to fuel it as well. But yeah, I mean, listen, there's always, you know, art art is provocation. Like I remember pouring over, you know, the H.R. Geiger, all those imagery, all that imagery, looking at all the penetration and like, I don't know. There's so many penises in his work. Yeah. And, I mean, it, and the alien's head is like one big phallic symbol. That's right. I remember when I was a kid, not only did I get the graphic novel, but I got the chest purser t-shirt out of Fangoria, which is $30. I remember that. And it was like a latex like penis coming out of his shirt. It was the, I know then, exactly the shirt you're talking about. <laughs> it was white. And I wore it like a total geek to the Aliens premiere at the at the Egyptian. Not the premiere, but like opening night of that movie. Right. I was like first in line. I thought it was so cool. And then um, I had the doll. I had the, the, the actual toy, which was stood about, I don't know, like, I don't know, 17, 18 inches tall. It had a thing you press on its on the back of its head and the mouth came in and out of the mouth. Like, like a like a, you know, yep. har, a hard cock emerging from a mouth. Can you say that on the show? You I don't can. Know. Yeah, we are. Um, but also the head, the dome, glo- it glowed. It was like a, but I had to keep it in the closet. I was so scared of it. Like I, I bought it and I loved it, but I kept it in the closet because I thought it was gonna come get me at night. Oh my god, I love that. Yeah, I'm interested because we talk about Geiger and all of the phallic imagery. I I think there's something about uh, his work sometimes. Straight men are gayer than gay men. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, Where mm-hmm. they seem like more obsessed by things that we just mm-hmm. kind of acknowledge is part of like maybe our lives and our sexual lives mm-hmm. and have made our peace with. But like it's still so forbidden mm-hmm. that. Well, because they don't have the they don't have that weird intrinsic guilt about it. They don't have the, the velvet rage that we right. have or whatever, you know, that growing up in a world that's not, not that's not designed for us. You know, they, they, they have that sort of like, you know, I don't know, like naivete towards it, which is must be uh, freeing. Right. So, And you're definitely always drawn and fascinated by the things that are a mystery to you. Exactly. Yeah. I remember, you know, I went to see a, a double feature of Close Encounters of the Manitou as a kid. My parents did not know the Manitou was playing with Close Encounters. And in that movie, it was, it was sort of an alien ripoff because she gives birth through her back to an, a, a demon, like an American. Right. And that's the one with Tony Curtis. Yes. Yeah. And that movie scarred me. As a child, because I ran out of the, sc- I, I remember running out of the theater screaming, but I couldn't leave. And, you know, and then at the end, like the, the hospital freezes, and this someone throws a typewriter at this frozen nurse, and her head flies off. And if you haven't seen the Manitou, <laughs> it's a crazy movie. I don't know that it necessarily it's not, works the whole time. No, but yeah. But, but imagine, imagine seeing that when you're like I don't know seven or eight years old. You're right. Yeah, it was awful. <laughs> and my parents hadn't done the research because they didn't know that Close Encounters was playing with the Manitou. That, what kind of double feature is that? It's a strange double feature because one's very much a family film and one's the Manitou. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so aliens and Manitous and all that aside, um, you became fascinated with horror and uh, kind of these the queer representation in it and you've, you've applied some of this darkness and some of this queerness to your own work. Uh, and I know that you are in the process of working on a new film. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes. This is something I did not write, but it's a screenplay that I found um, called The Invisible Boy. And it's about a, a 12-year-old girl who gets mysteriously pregnant and she insists to her parents that it's by her imaginary friend. And what drew you to that specific? And she's not, and she's very matter of fact about it. She's not acting like a victim. She's not acting as if she's been violated or raped. She's just like, because it's a horror movie and it's a terrifying story for parents who don't have uh, 
control because I think adolescence is scary enough, especially for a father and their and his daughter. Right. But what happens when she's been impregnated and she's twelve and she's innocent and she's not even a sexual person and uh, she's insisting that it's a supernatural sort of thing. And she goes, you know, and it kind of like tears the parents apart and the father comes under scrutiny as someone who might have slept with his own daughter. People in town think she's the immaculate conception because she might be like, right. the mom sort of chooses not to look at it closely because she just wants to kind of keep the peace and like, you know, believe, you know, she, she, she's very, um, deep into the church. So I don't know. It's just a very, it's, it's just a horror film that I feel like I haven't seen. And that's what excited me about it. Um, and then at school, she becomes th- this 12 year old gawky, awkward, shy girl becomes popular with the seventh graders because she's obviously had sex and she's gotten pregnant. So she's cool. You know, so it's like, it's interesting to see how the different factions in a society in a town react to the pregnancy. I'm excited for it. And you're still in the early phases of yes. putting that together. Yeah, we, um, we're actually right now uh, ca- uh, in the process of uh, casting it. So we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. Well, fingers crossed. Thank That's you. exciting. Yeah. Now, you and I, uh, we've known each other for a long time, but we met when we were introduced by Peaches Christ, who you uh, produced Peaches' feature film, All About Evil. And uh, Peaches Christ is a well-known cult drag queen figure in San Francisco. And one thing I know about you is you're a big fan of the drag community and drag queens. Uh, and, you know, you've worked with Trixie, you've worked with Peaches. And Jinx Monsoon did a, a, actually a reading of, Jaw, of Jawbreaker, the musical in New York. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your interest in the drag world and... Uh, do you think that there is kind of a connection to horror and drag? Yeah, definitely, because there's something inherently monstrous about drag. So many gay guys are like, I'm scared of drag queens. And it's like, of course you are. It's like this man in a dress. It's like dressed to kill. <laughs> it's like coming up to you. It's going to kill you. No. Uh, but, but, <laughs> no but <laughs> one of the earliest drag queens that I love is, was Tim Curry. It was Frankenfurter. Right. And Frank wasn't a drag queen. He was... Living that was, his that truth. Was lifestyle. Yeah. That was lifestyle. Right. I mean, he was a sweet transvestite from tra- transsexual Transylvania. And it's so funny how words like transsexual and transvestite are now not even you know uttered. Um, right. <laughs> but back then, it was alien. All right. that was alien. Um, and he was literally an alien. Right. Um, so yeah, for me, I think it's always it's always been hand in hand with the with a with the transgressiveness of it. And so whether it's playing with gender, androgyny, a la David Bowie, or Kiss, or Alice Cooper, or it's, you know, drag, or it's a trans person who is just born in the wrong body. I'm, I'm very much drawn to every variation of any kind of gender. Um, malleability. I think it's interesting. I just, I've always thought it was interesting and something that I um, relate to. Well, because it also shows that we're more than just our confines. Exactly, exactly. And I remember wanting to, you know, wear my mom's clothes when I was a kid. I, w- I went to school's Tootsie when I was in fifth grade. I need to see pictures. I of got that. made fun of, and I didn't give a flying fuck. <laughs> uh, and you've done a lot with the drag community. There are uh, drag queens, of course, who worship Jawbreaker, but you um, have been involved in different things in different ways. And I know that you are currently going to be a guest judge on the second season of Dragula, the yes. horror show that's hosted by the Boulay brothers. And you were a judge in the first season. So tell me a little bit about that. I was, um, well, the Boulay brothers are like punk rock drag queens. And I've always been into punk rock, mm-hmm. um, whether it's Susie and the Banshees, who could be considered drag queen in her own way, even though she's a biological female. But um, 
Ramones, uh, Rock and Roll High School <laughs> with the Ramones, Breaking Glass, Nicholas Roeg. I've always been uh, drawn to a punk aesthetic. And the Blade Brothers mix punk with drag, with horror. Right. With filth, with glamour. You know, it's like they're, they're all things that I sort of traffic in. So we, when I met them, we definitely felt like kindred spirits. And they asked me if I would be a guest judge on the first episode of Drag Dragula, the first season. And I was like, sure. I'd never done anything like that, but I wanted to support them. You know, <laughs> and yeah. I did it. And it was, it was a total hoot. What's really great about that first episode that you're a judge on is of all the judges, you really were obsessed with the drag queen's shoes. Like almost all of your, do you, you like a good pump? Well, you know, I, I've been known to, you know, get in a frock now and now and then. So it's like, I can be a bit critical about that kind of thing. And especially when you're trying to do drag horror. Right. And it's, it's sort of like, it's not just a costume. It's sort of like a, um, aesthetic, a genre, a creature, everything has to go together. You can't just like, you can't be like the Wicked Witch of the West and then sort of have like this plain red pump or whatever, you know? Right. So I don't know. It was just fun to sort of like deconstruct. But then there was like a queen who was like Nina Hagen and there was a queen who was like straight out of Night, Night of the Demons, you know? So I was definitely, um, I don't know. I loved everything that was happening. I mean, there's only a few, you know, bad shoe moments. Of course. And do you know what you're doing with them for season two yet? Or is I don't it- know yet. I don't know yet. Um, I think I was supposed to be on the first episode and I couldn't because we had a, we had a conflict, unfortunately. So I'm not exactly sure, but I'm sure it'll be fabulous because they're they're awesome. They're awesome guys. Creatures, actually. Creatures. Creatures of the <laughs> night. Creatures of the night. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and uh, when you were talking about the icons of drag and uh, and queer identifying or queer symbolism that pulled you into the world and pulled you pulled your interest as a kid, you actually listed a lot of punk rock people. Joey Ramone, I know you're a big Susie Sue fan. Um, and when Kansas Bowling was on a few weeks ago, she and I talked about the this kind of like parallel relationship between the punk community and the queer community. And I think that there's a lot to be said about the fact that there's a similarity, even though the world doesn't necessarily always see that. Mm-hmm. And I know that you're really into punk culture. So could you talk a little bit about that? Punk or glam or anything that's subversive. Uh, uh-huh. That's interesting. Well, I don't know. I, I just feel like it's 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 sort of like anything that's like uh, anti-authoritarian, uh, um, gender blurred, violent, uh, scary. And any manifestation is interesting. Like I would say Joey, Joey Ramone is a drag queen. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and he's hulking, and he's terrifying, and he's covered. His face is covered, and, there, he, and there's something very other about him. And the Ramone, the Ramones have always been unapologetically uh, outside the box. They never had hit, hit songs. They didn't get the radio play they wanted. I mean, they were, their manager, Danny Fields, was gay. You know, I mean, they were incredible. And Susie, I had the same thing. I was, I was similarly drawn to her. I think for an unapologetic. Um, darkness like like Susie had always said like her music was influenced by yeah there's punk but there was also horror right she wanted her songs to sound like um, horror movies and that's why they do that's why they have that really the truly um, dark edge to them um, so yeah I, I think that they're, they're it's all married you know and even like Dress to Kill absolutely what I really think is interesting because gay men frequently kind of get the stereotype that we listen to like Streisand and Divas and things. But if you go back and look at the history of punk rock music, the anti-establishment, bucking against the norm, there was a queer core movement Mm -hmm. in punk long before gay was embraced as a zeitgeist thing. Well, John Waters, divine. John Waters is punk rock. Yeah, totally. Andy Warhol. 
Absolutely. know, it was all happening. Like you can go back and watch that fabulous scene in the middle of, uh, you know, Midnight Cowboy when they're at one of those uh, factory parties, and it's such an incredible sequence because it's 20 to 25 minutes long, and you are in, you are at a Warhol party, because you know that that whole scene is populated with the actual characters from that time period. It's so authentic. It's so great. Or when I, I remember when I first saw fame, the movie Fame, I went to, uh, and inside the movie Alan Parker's Fame, uh, there was a huge sequence when they go to see Rocky Horror. Right. And you're at the A Street Playhouse, and Sal Pirro is there, and the kids who went there are there. And you feel like you are seeing Rocky Horror at midnight at the A Street Playhouse in the early 80s. And so it's, it just speaks to like the magic of cinema that it can actually take you right. on these experiences. And it also shows how things that maybe were considered subversive can also be cathartic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because, you know, those are moments. Like, when you watch Fame, the idea of them going to see Rocky Horror is like a window into a subversive world. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. factory party in Midnight Cowboy is a window into a mm-hmm. subversive world. The the sheer uh, audacity of Friedkin making Cruising in the 70s mm-hmm. is like mm-hmm. an expose of, of something we didn't see on film. So, for so long, just the mere act of gayness or queerness on screen was subversive. But now, in 2017, we have queer cinema and queer film festivals and movies such as GBF and the work of Todd Haynes and, you know, these filmmakers, Moonlight. Moonlight. As someone who's interested in transgressive material, mm-hmm. what does it take to be transgressive now? That's a great question. I I, I don't know. I think I think just, you know, following following your your you know your truth. You know, being you know, still t- telling those stories that kind of like capture your imagination, like this, the, like the Invisible Boy, the script I found. You know, it's there's no overt queer content to it, you right? Know? And yet I'm somehow drawn to it. I wanted to, I want to make that movie because I think it's 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 a way into a um, a horror story that we haven't seen. It's like telling telling new stories, right? Doing things that haven't been done, you know. But there's a queerness to it. The idea of this girl being ostracized mm-hmm. and not yeah. believed for yeah. her truth. Yeah. And the fact that she's been, she might have been impregnated in a, super, a supernatural way. Right. You know? Um, and, you know, being becoming popular because she's pregnant at 12. That, that's suddenly social currency for 12-year-olds in this world. That's bizarre, but that's the world we live in. Well, ever since Teen Mom... Uh, do you think, too, that the rise and fall of what is considered transgressive on screen uh, relates to, you know, the political climate? Because right now we're on a conservative backswing in our government. And if you see the rise of horror in the 80s, we had Reagan. Yeah. And do you think that there's more going to be more? Oh, yeah, of a- it's going to get it's going to get haywire. There's no question about it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look. I mean, look, look at Cult, American Horror Story. Cult. I haven't watched it yet, but I hear it's absolutely about the election and killer clowns, and it's supposed to be completely out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we're living our life's a horror movie now. So it's like, how are we going to make things that are scary on screen when every day you know, is a scary morning on NPR? Right. Well, maybe the responsibility of horror then is not to scare us, but to kind of be fear as catharsis. Help us escape too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's like. You know, Lord knows that we need it. I mean, it's like I remember seeing Tarnation, you know, and I feel like that in a way that was sort of like a, and it's, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm backtracking now, okay. but to a, an, another kind of escape, you know, mm-hmm. through that movie and, and a world that we had, we've never been in. I'm sorry, that was like a complete brain fart. No, I mean, I have them all the time. No. Uh, you are someone who sees a lot of movies. Yes, I try to. I mean, there's, I, I just thought Ingrid Goes West. 
Yeah, Ingrid Goes West kind of speaks to what you were talking about a little bit with the Instagram influencer theme mm-hmm. of the new Jawbreaker. Yes. I think, uh, for those of you who haven't seen Ingrid Goes West or know what it is, it's a new movie starring Aubrey Plaza and Elizabeth Olsen. And it's about a woman who becomes obsessed with a Instagram influencer and travels across the country to meet her because she feels like she knows this person because she sees her on social media. And it kind of goes down like this single white female uh, spiral. Mm-hmm. Um, that movie's a horror movie. Oh, straight up. Straight up. I saw it with two friends, went to a matinee, um, and I was happy to see the matinee was actually popular. People were in the theater on a, on a weekday at the Los Feliz Theater. I was, I was so happy. That movie really disturbed, definitely disturbed me, and it made me think about actually Heathers. You know, it made me think about, it, it was a searing modern day social commentary about, you know, our obsession with belonging you know, right. still, still, you know, it's like every there's that saying that oh, we're always still in high school. We all want to belong. You know, and that movie explicitly takes it to the to the edge. Right, because now it's not about ruling the cafeteria; it's about ruling your social media. Feed. Yeah, it definitely made me uncomfortable. It's uh, that's the exact feeling I got. <laughs> I wouldn't say that I enjoyed it. I it was a movie I appreciated, mm-hmm. but yeah. there's a discomfort to it. I think because. It was a slap in the face mm-hmm. to all of us who, mm-hmm. who exist online because there are things that happen in that movie that while you're watching it, you're like, how could she be just so dumb or why would she do that? But we've all done those mm-hmm. things. Yeah. If you have social media, you exist in that space and you're implicated. I think what's interesting, too, about Ingrid Goes West is that um, it kind of reveals that social media itself is a selfie, not just pictures, but the whole experience. Because no one posts anything online, whether it's a political opinion, a movie review, you know, a picture of their cat, without the hope that people are going to like it. Uh-huh. And there's the horror. is like, why do we care so much? Yeah. Well, we want, it, we want to be seen. I mean, the movie, you know, the movie's ultimately about being seen. It's like, it's not enough to be seen now in real life. You need to be seen right. by, you know, hundreds of thousands of strangers it's, it's very disturbing. Um, and I was so surprised. I knew it was going to be a black comedy, but I didn't realize it was going to be as dark as it was. It's not marketed as dark as it is. No. <laughs> uh, what would Courtney Shane think about social media? Oh, boy. I mean, she'd probably, you know, be rolling it somehow, you know. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't know. I, I always feel like Courtney exists in her own, like, bizarre world. I mean, she's such a, 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 a creature, you know. I mean, Jawbreaker, you know, they're wearing vintage hand they wear vintage handbags and they dress kind of out of you know one of the influences was Greece in the 70s and the 50s and the 80s and it's it sort of takes place out it's meant to take place out of time right even though it's very 90s I guess in its own way because it was made during the 90s and the soundtrack certainly very 90s but even the Donnas at the end were brought in because that was a direct reference to Heathers. I was like, oh, cool. There's this band with their all name Donna, just like Heathers. Right. That's exactly why they were in the movie. And they were sort of like a, you know, a hard rock girl band, which I thought was very a callback to The Runaways. Um, well, it's such a girl power film. And as a fan. Oh, yeah. But, oh, not to interrupt you, but oh, yeah. I do feel like, you know, I, we talk about like the goths loving it, obviously, and, and anyone who feels like an outsider. But girls, regular, normal girls love Jawbreaker, too. Right. Well, because I think. <laughs> any female who went through the American high, yeah, any female who went through the American high school experience right, right. probably dealt with that hierarchy, uh-huh. not to that extreme, because the movie is meant to take it to an extreme. Uh-huh. But I think that you really put on display yeah. that kind of fragility of of being 
a young woman in high school. Um, it's also hardcore in a way. People, no one can be that hardcore in high school. You just no. can't. So it's just it's such a fantasy for anyone, you know. The one thing, as uh, students of cult cinema and B movies and horror that we are on the show, uh, I do want to ask about Jawbreaker because she's an icon. Obviously, everyone talks about Rose and everybody talks about Rebecca and Julie and Judy and your amazing cast. But you've got Pam Greer in this film and Pam Greer is a superstar. Mm-hmm. So uh, just tell me a little bit about working with the queen of black exploitation. It was incredible. It was a huge honor. Um you know, I mean, the film doesn't do her justice. I mean, it's like, <laughs> she's in it, you know, it's like, she's like the detective. It's like, it's just bizarre sort of seeing her interrogate Courtney because they're like sort of like different dogs in it, in it, in it, you know, they're just, they don't even, you're like, how do they exist in the same reality? Right. But they sort of do. But yeah, no, she was awesome. She was just extremely sweet and really cool and just game for anything and ready to, ready to play. Um, one thing I remember about her is that she, we were told she does her own hair, you know, you can't touch her hair. She's going to, and, and I guess she came with like three different kinds of, uh, she had three different wigs or hair pieces that she put in. And, you know, so I go, you know, she was doing her thing and she was great. She was awesome. And she gave me a limited edition Jackie Brown swatch watch, which I, I thought was pretty cool. Oh my God. And my boyfriend at the time was like, don't wear that. Keep that in the case. It's a, it's a collector's item. And of course I had to wear it because I just, I just like want to live my life, you know? You would have been shooting Jawbreaker when Jackie Brown was out, right? That's 97? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally I don't completely remember if if she if it had come out yet or, or what, but um, but yeah, no, she was she was awesome, and it, and it makes sense in the world of Jawbreaker in that kind of weird timeless sort of meta world. It makes sense that somebody like Pam Greer would be the one to go against Rose McGowan's character, right? In in, in, in a cinematic language, and then Carol Kane, of course, is in it, and she references back to you know um, when a stranger calls exactly, which is a, a film I was majorly obsessed with as a kid that terrified me. One, you've got uh, you've got PJ Souls and William Cat make a cameo as well. Yeah, and of course they have callbacks to Carrie. Um, and you end with a prom. I do. Horror yeah. is in the DNA of this. That's why we keep returning to discussion of that particular film because horror so, is in the DNA. Yeah. yeah, it's so interesting because you know when I made the, the prom scene, can't compare to Carrie. I mean, Carrie is right. the ultimate. I mean, it's like it's opera. Right. It is opera. It is per, it, it, it is it is next level. Um, so whenever I see like Jawbreaker on a prom list with Carrie, I'm like, oh please, those shouldn't even be in the same in the same sentence. But whatever, it's fine. I'll take it. You know, it's a it's, a, it's, a, it's a descendant, right? You know, it's. I think it shows that your film fans know their history too. Yeah, and I think what makes it cult also is that people, some people just hate it and don't get it and think it's really bad, and that's awesome as well because it's 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 just like I'm, you know. Now that's it's, it's polarizing. Something that a lot yeah. of filmmakers don't discuss frequently. But in the pantheon of cult, do you think it is important to have as much kind of resistance to your movie as there is embracing? Because that helps the discussion continue. Yeah, I think so. You know, because if something's made for everybody, then it's not cult. Right. It's also not interesting. <laughs> if, if something is accessible to everyone, then it's not pushing buttons. Right. Like, I remember when Jawbreaker came out, Roger Ebert was explicitly really nasty about it. Right. And I was like, really? You're the guy who wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, and you're going to come for this, which is like sort of like a descendant of what you did? And I remember being kind of hurt by that. Not hurt, but kind of like, you know, a little surprised. Ebert was always very hard on horror and cult films, which is interesting considering his Russ Meyer roots. I wonder if it was sort of like he never wanted to 
embrace his past. Yeah, and I think that he also had a, probably a guilty pleasure sweet spot for that genre. And when he saw things, he was probably extra hard on them. And you know, he he's a cinephile, like, and you know, he, he you know he he knew, he knew how to write about films and, and speak about them. Um, but when you grow up, when you grow up with someone like Ebert on the TV, and suddenly he's like tearing you a new asshole on t- <laughs> on TV, it's kind of harsh. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, outside of Ingrid Goes West, uh, what have you been watching lately? And one thing I like to ask all guests, what do you recommend? What should people be watching? I'm actually watching a lot of TV, of course, like everybody else now. And, you know, I just got through this one Peaks, uh, The Return. What did you think of it? Well, I'm a huge David Lynch fan, so I had an incredible time with it. I mean, I, I, I loved it. I loved it every episode. But... You know, I found it problematic as well, you know? Sure. I, did, I don't know, you know, if it had to be 18 episodes, um... And the whole Dougie of it all, I just got on my nerves, you know, the Dougie character specifically. I just felt like, you know, I just, it it was drawn out for sure. It was drawn out. Uh, I like the phrase, the Dougie of it all. Um, (laughs) I want to start applying that to life. (laughs) Oh, the Dougie of it all. Yeah. I found it frustrating, but then there was a few episodes that were truly transcendent and you know, there was, it was, there was some really terrifying imagery in it and there was some great music and there were all the Lynchian hallmarks that we love. So there was lots of love about it. What I think is interesting too, that not enough people are talking about is the sheer agency that David Lynch got to make this show. Yes. Because I don't think we're ever going to see a network or studio give a filmmaker that kind of power ever again. No, because from what I understand, he was like, well, I'm only going to do this if it's 18 episodes. Right. And then from what I heard, he sort of turned in the 18 hours done to Showtime and they were like, they had to play it. Like there was no, there was absolutely zero development or intervention and that's unheard of. No, it never happens. But David Lynch is a living legend and it, it's as it should be. It's exactly as it should be. And it's so funny because I watched it back to back. I have like a, a Sunday night TV and a small group that comes over and we watch Claws as well. I mean, we watched The Handmaid's Tale as well before that, right. but but Claws I thought was absolutely delicious. I mean, I got really way into that because once again, that was a genre that's that's his tone and his style and a melding of genres you don't see on TV. Right. And I'm so excited that a network like TNT is like telling those stories and and, and embracing that tone because the only one who really, who really does it is Ryan Murphy. Right. And uh, Handmaid's Tale was a true horror story. Oh, that was that was fantastic. I mean, to me, Handmaid's Tale was was the best the best thing on TV last year. And I'm and I'm including that with you know Twin Peaks and the Claws. I mean, Handmaid's Tale was was it beginning, middle, and end to me. I mean, that was true horror. I mean, the tone was so consistent, the darkness was so palpable, performances, everything about it, I loved. And I didn't and I didn't have the book as a con- I didn't I read the book when I was a kid. I hadn't reread the book, so I couldn't really. I have a lot of friends or certain people who really you know don't like certain things about the TV show because the book it, it differs from the book. Right. And so that so you're caught up on TV. Yes. Any films or no? Film-wise, well, I'm going to see It tomorrow night. I'm very excited about that. It's, I have my ticket and everything. It's so exciting when you can buy a ticket in advance. Because, you know, back in the day, it was like we got in line for movies. And we waited in line. And there was that sort of a, uh, anticipation that you had. And that, you know, um, camaraderie with the fans that you don't get now. Because we all have our assigned seat at the Argo. It is, it is, there's sort of a... Uh, the, the 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 mystery of of the cinematic of the film of of, of the movie going uh, I don't know process is not is not not the same anymore, but it is something that everyone's getting excited about. Right. Well, uh, by the time it airs, you'll have seen it. So hopefully, you enjoyed the, the film. And you've seen it already. I have seen it already, <laughs> and uh, it's awesome. 
But I think it hits upon the themes of things that we're talking about today a lot is that the, the horror of it is sort of secondary to the human experience. Uh, you know, it ultimately is about the loss of childhood innocence. And, um, you know, the, the discussion of, of the social hierarchy in Jawbreaker and, and the, the things that we suffer in our youth they're related in a way that maybe people don't realize. Like we create monsters because it's easier to tangibly deal with a Courtney Shane or a Pennywise dependent on the candy colored universe that they exist in than it is to realize that like we don't really have a villain that we can fight in life because there's always another. Yeah, well now we have Trump. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about a monster. It's true. That's like the ultimate. He's lurking in the sewers right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we talked a little bit about the various things that you've got coming, but is there anything uh, that you're working on now that you didn't get a chance to mention today? Uh, I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, Well, there's there's a horror musical that I've been developing. Oh, with the, the lyricist and composer of the Jawbreaker musical, that is exciting. I don't want to talk too much about that because I feel like it's such an, but it deals with a, make, a makeup company, a cosmetics company, and some, uh, some ensuing, I don't know, you know, death. And that's interesting. The, the idea of a cosmetics company, musical, and death. Uh, it seems to fit very much in the Darren Stein world. It does, but it's yeah, but it's also. I mean, you can look back at, at things like Sweeney's Hod and Little Shop of Horrors, right. and I don't even, even something like Death Becomes Her. I guess. Um, but yeah, no, it does. It's it's so interesting how it's like you know these things are hard to, hard to get made and, and and to make, but you know, you plug up, you you know, you just have to keep, keep going. How would you define your own aesthetic? Huh, it's interesting because usually in the world of film, critics and yeah. viewers and things, they kind of try and tell you what you are, but what do you think makes a Hallmark Derenstein film? I think it's probably something that is uh, definitely a little bit heightened, a little bit out of, a little bit, you know, out of reality. Um, I don't know, it's, it's sort of a, a little bit of an underworld, a, a, world, a world that's a little bit forbidden, something we haven't quite seen yet, something that's... Um, um, I'm not exactly sure about that. It's a, it's a tough one to answer. Um, I mean, from GBF and Jawbreaker, it would just seem to be more like, a, I don't know, it was like kind of like a pop culture, sort of like, I don't know, um, I don't know, glamour to it, uh, you know, in a way. But I think there's also, I like to think there's also sort of a heart to it as well. Like there's a sort of a, um, a passion and a, and a conviction and, and a, um, um, I don't know, a, gen- a genuineness to what that story is, whether, you know, whether it's horror or, or, or comedy or, you know, black comedy or just something that's more of a thriller. I think there's just sort of a, I don't know, I like to say an authenticity or genuineness and maybe even a little bit of a visceral quality to it. And I think the one through line that seems to be true of all of your work is that it's about unapologetic people. And um, I think at the end of the day, that's all that we can ask from our characters and from our art. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I think just create apolo- unapologetically. I love it. I think it's great. Uh, where can people find you, Darren? Um, I'm on Instagram at Darren Stein. I'm on Twitter. I think it's also the same at Darren Stein, right? I'm on Facebook and all, all the, the usual haunts. <laughs> well, you should follow Darren and keep an eye out for all of his forthcoming projects. Uh, your homework, too, is to go back and watch Jawbreaker and Sparkler and GBF. Jawbreaker's on Hulu. 
put the camera on me. The documentary is on Netflix, but you have to order a disc. GBF's on Netflix streaming. And the one, the one that's hard to find is Sparkler. I've got to get that somewhere. I got to get. I gotta, I've got to get that on a platform. But it's worth tracking down. It's a it's a marvelous masterpiece. That's very sweet of you to say. And uh, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners before you head off into the night? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I just think it's it's a, you know keep making making great art and going to, and consuming it and staying true to yourself. Thank you, Darren Stein, for joining us today and for killing the team dream and keeping it alive. Thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night and good luck. Dead for Filth is a Reverie Studios original production and can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, as well as the Reverie app for the best in queer-rated entertainment.